Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly, filling in for Peter Hamby. It's Monday, July 11th, and for this Media Monday, Dylan Byers joins me from the wilds of Sun Valley, where he's hanging with the moguls, telling me what's really going on inside the lodge. And then we'll talk about a little of the office gossip inside the Washington Post. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Just one quick programming note here. Dylan and I taped this conversation late last week when he was in Sun Valley reporting at the Allen & Co. conference. Dylan! Welcome. Can you tell our listeners where you are right now? Uh, right now, I'm in Sun Valley. I'm sitting beneath some sun-drenched, quaking aspens, getting towards the end of the Allen & Company conference, <laughs> which I come to every year because it's where all the folks that I cover come and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. And it's been a very interesting week. It has been a week that in a departure from previous years has been very much dominated by one theme and one theme only, and that is the impending recession and what that means for all of these businesses and and how it sort of shifts the calculus, certainly for anyone who is in an ad-supported business, whether that's a, a, a Facebook or an NBC Universal. But that is really that sort of dominant theme here this week is recession. How long is it going to be? How bad is it going to be? What can we do about it? And I don't want to make anyone nervous here. This is not investment advice, but I would assume that the CEOs of some of the economy and the culture's largest businesses would know a little bit more than than you or I, perhaps, about the future of of the global economy. So the, the fact that you're saying that they're concerned and perhaps feel like they're flying a little bit blind is slightly revelatory to me. I'd love to know what the mood is and and if there's a focus on being able to engineer the stock price and and what's what's keeping these moguls up at night? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think in terms of what they know, I think they all believe that we are either headed for a recession, we're in a recession, that it is going to be, the landscape is going to be very brutal for one to two years. 
Interestingly, Elon Musk is coming here at the end of the week to speak, and he's sort of been given the headline billing. He is not actually the person who who most of the folks I talk to are interested in hearing from. The person they want to hear from is Larry Summers. And Larry Summers has been so prescient about the economic situation for several months. They are sort of waiting with bated breath for his address because they want to know Again, how long is it going to take? What's it going to take to get us out of here? And in the meantime, having all sort of accepted to a person, really, to an executive, that this really is going to be brutal for the next 18 to 24 months, they are getting ahead of it by thinking about, are they going to have to slow down on growth? They're anticipating much lower ad spending. Certainly in the streaming universe right now, I think this time last year, there was a sense that streaming was the future and streaming growth, sky was the limit. That is very much no longer the case. There's very much a sense now that with streaming growth having sort of hit a ceiling in the wake of that Netflix report, that they have to actually lean a little bit more heavily on their linear businesses and the revenue that they can draw from those linear businesses. And so there is this weird shift all of a sudden where those, for the media companies, linear is popular again having more than one revenue stream, not just leaning on streaming as Netflix has had to do, is very appealing for them right now. I certainly, there've been a lot of talk at layoffs, both at tech companies and at media companies. I think there's a sense that there's no way to sustain the business without some cuts and without some tightening. So, you know, this is, would suggest a rather dire picture or dire outlook. People don't seem like they're in a bad mood. I think people recognize that the market is cyclical and that they will come out of this. And many of these businesses are sort of set up to weather a storm, but there is a recognition that it is going to be a very long storm and that things are going to look different when they come out on the other side. It's funny. Two things pop into my mind. The the first is it's very interesting to see this sort of cultural recalibration around Larry Summers, who was probably introduced to the generation beneath us as the, the Harvard president portrayed in the social network who, you know, squelched the dreams of the Winklevi. And I think to, to people who pay attention to democratic politics, you know, Larry Sanders was certainly, you know, the, the Clinton era head of treasury, but he was this Cassandra on inflation. And one of the great counterfactuals in, in recent history is that in his memoir, o- Obama mentioned that he had a sort of handshake deal with Larry that he would be um, uh, NEC and then would eventually become the Fed chairman. Uh, That was a move uh, Obama couldn't end up declaring because there was some resistance in the left-ish factions of the party. I think Elizabeth Warren, you know, sort of sit over my dead body. It's fascinating to me that given the mini recession that we're in, given the, the market correction, given that so many companies that only a year or two ago at Sun Valley were buyers may now be potential sellers, that Larry is the the man of the moment. Yeah, that history is absolutely right. But I think it is because he has been so prescient on this. You go back and you look at the column he wrote, uh, God, was it six or seven months ago for the Washington Post, his interview with Ezra Klein. I think there's a view here that people didn't want him to be right, but he's definitely right this time. And I And I think that if you're a listener out there and you're thinking, okay, the executives who run these Fortune 100 companies must know something, I would tell you that they, not all of them, nothing is monolithic, but by and large, a lot of them are taking their cues right now from Larry Summers. Outside of Larry Dillon, I'm curious if there's any 
sense of what the anticipated, you know, deal flow conversations may be, for the last couple of years, Sun Valley has been almost like the Sherry Redstone bat mitzvah where, you know, she was being presumably in a sotto voce way or in a um, an implicit way courted as Paramount Global as a meaningful bite-sized streaming asset in among these growing conglomerates. Is there a coveted prize that you're detecting this year? I would say there's there's a prize insofar as there's not something that is so obviously there for the taking. What I will say is that because of the market, because of that Netflix ceiling, you are seeing a radically different conversation in terms of companies like Netflix and Disney. We are not talking about small fish anymore, like, like uh, Paramount Global. People here are talking about Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos now have a price tag on their back. Could an activist mm-hmm. investor come into Disney and maybe force out Bob Chapek and try and position the company for a sale? If you look at how potential that Netflix has based off of how it was valued up until recently, Disney as well, and they've proven themselves. And I think the conventional wisdom was, okay, only so many media companies are going to make it to the other side. Netflix made it. Disney made it. Now, all of a sudden, their valuations, their, their, their share price has dropped, in Netflix's case, 66%, in Disney's case, 44% from where they were this time last year. I think now, all of a sudden, there's a conversation of, if you are the kind of company that might want to claim a serious stake on consumer media, is now the time to do it? Is now the time to buy Netflix? Is now the time to buy Disney? That sounds really sort of from the perspective of this media reporter, that sounds like a really exciting sort of sea change moment in the history of media. I would caution that there are a lot of things that are going to get in the way of this. One, everybody is suffering through this market in their own way, shape, and form. And two is that nothing about the regulatory landscape has become any easier, right? I don't think there's a huge deal of appetite to deal with the headaches that would be implicit with taking on if you're, if you're, say, an Amazon or an Apple taking on these companies right now with binary regulations. And I also think that the fundamental thesis of these big tech companies who might one day take a more robust stake in the media world has not changed, which is these media companies, most of them, with the exception of Netflix, remain tethered to that low to no growth linear business and... That comes with all sorts of headaches about how do you manage that decline? How do you get out of that business? How do you avoid just all the headaches that come with even something as as small as owning like a news company? Those reservations persist. It's it's a very different world from a year ago when we were talking about like, could Netflix buy something? Could Disney buy something? And now all of a sudden this question of could they be bought? Well, the thing that it seems so confounding to me is that it's not Netflix that's changed. It's the it's the market that's changed. You know, the, the sort of, a, it's not me, it's you kind of thing. Right. You know, in the 12 months ended uh, March 22, Netflix's EBITDA was about $19 billion, which is 14% more than it was in 2021 when it was like 18 and a half billion. And if you look at what the 30 or so um, Wall Street banks and, and analyst shops say about Netflix, more of it is a buy than uh, a sell or a neutral. It does seem like the company hasn't fundamentally changed, although it's lost a couple million subscribers. It sounds like there's a fear that the next quarterly earnings call is not going to be great. But grand scheme of things, losing 2 million subscribers off of 220 million is less than 1%. It's not a lot. What seems like has changed with more competitors, with a recession, 
with the market, in air quotes, understanding the actual streaming economics better, is that, you know, and, and Matt's made this point, the total addressable market's smaller. Like, there's just a realization, there's almost like an adulthood that's happening where you realize, okay, you know, maybe I'm never going to be able to afford that 75-room um, French villa and I'll have to sell right. for something else. And that's just the kind of, that's just the kind of life I'm going to have. And, and Netflix is having this sort of, um, these midlife blues here. But it's, it's very surprising to see it happen in, in real time because the company's performance hasn't introduced like a new Coke, you know, or a defective Tylenol. It's more that uh, the, the world around it changed. Right. And, and yes, what is 2 million in, in, in the scope of 220 million? But also, to your point, the valuation reflects a certain confidence in growth. And again, what changed is it seemed like the sky was the limit and it seemed like Netflix was going to be the new television. And then all of a sudden, it became clear that the total addressable market was probably smaller than people thought. And that has ramifications not just for Netflix but for Disney, for Warner Brothers, for everyone who has a streaming service and whose budgeting and, and growth plans and their appeal to the market was based on this notion of nonstop growth. <sighs> Yikes. Um, Dylan, we're going to pause there for a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about uh, a more human size drama at The Washington Post. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. 
The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Okay, we're back. Dylan, our colleague Tara Palmieri broke a, a Dylan Byersdell <laughs> story last week about the um, the appointment of David Shipley as the editorial page editor of the Washington Post. I'm sure many devout listeners of Media Monday are wondering, why do these guys care so much about the editorial page <laughs> editor of the Washington Post? Okay, fair question, but there are a couple reasons I care so much. One, this is one of those sinecure-style appointments in Washington where the editorial page editor of the Post knows everyone, is connected to everyone, has outsized power, you know, is is involved in huge deliberations about figuring out who the paper endorses. This person is also appointed by Jeff Bezos, which is no small thing. And also, uh, you know, of, of no small significance is the fact that the the Post, from my understand, has sort of flatlined a little bit uh, in terms of its its digital growth, and and the editorial page is a, a, an opportunity to to welcome in new revenue, new readers, new dollars, and and all the above. So that's why we're talking about it. That's why we are so obsessed with it. So Dylan, I want to know: Do you know much about David Shipley? Do you have deep thoughts on this appointment? And if not, I'll tell you mine. Yeah, I would I would actually be very interested in yours because my perspective on him is purely sort of reputational. And I think that when Tara actually told me that this is who it was going to be, and kudos to her on that scoop, I had sort of two reactions. One is, well, okay, if you are looking for a experienced, capable person who satisfies the ambition of being not exactly centrist, but close enough to center where they can do a responsible job of entertaining opinions from the center left and the center right. Of all the available candidates who would actually say yes to the job offer, he might be the best. The flip side of this is that he is not a terribly inspiring choice if you are trying to make the Washington Post editorial page relevant, again, relevant beyond a few, you know, like the occasional moment when something sure. big happens. And I think that, you know, if you look at Bloomberg View, they turned out there was a lot of smart stuff that you could read at Bloomberg View on any any given week, but it wasn't like Bloomberg View was sort of like commanding the conversation. I agree. N nutrition facts. It was very, yes, it was often very boring and intentionally dry and, and non-controversial. That's right. 
But your take? Well, my take, um, I don't know him. So um, I want to say that uh, I worked at the Times and Bloomberg in the opposite order that he did. Uh, so we were sort of ships in the night there. Um, you're right. He's uncontroversial. He's a 59-year-old white guy, which is uh, not in, fa in fashion these days. But I believe the appointment was made in part because Fred Ryan, the CEO, wanted to have someone who's in the position for decades. That was one reason why they didn't promote the late Fred Hyatt's understudy, who was a, a woman who was in her early, mid-60s. I think Shipley is the most credentialed person to, to possibly get the job. He'd, he'd been Andy Rosenthal's deputy at the Times. He started and brought to some you know, real stature, Bloomberg View. But I think the real thing underpinning all this is that they did not want a James Bennett disaster on their hands, meaning they did not want to hire someone, as the Times did with James Bennett years ago, to come in, disrupt the place, introduce new ideas, introduce a, a lot of provocative new voices. You know, Bennett did some incredible work. And the guy is, you know, legitimately, I think, a, a, a genius by some measures. But he's going to be remembered for a sloppy editing error that led to a Sarah Palin libel suit that became a huge pain in the ass. And of course, that misguided Tom Cotton op-ed, which ended up costing him his job and really, you know, forced him to resign under a, a cloud of disgrace. So I'm quite certain that Fred Ryan wanted a safe bet. And and based on what you reported, Dylan, about Jeff Bezos's search for Sally Busby and, and, and the comments he and his partner, Lauren Sanchez, made about not believing in cancel culture and being turned off by all that, that they probably wanted someone who hewed to the middle. And and that's what they got. Yeah, and I would say, to, to go back to the James Bennett point really quickly, that was a huge preoccupation for Fred Ryan during the interview process, not with the op-ed editor, but with the editor of the paper, with Sally Busby and the other candidates for that role, which is interesting how much he sort of harped on that because that's not something that the news editor, that the executive editor, that's not in their jurisdiction. But this is like a real preoccupation for them because I think at the Jeff Bezos, Fred Ryan levels, you are really sort of put off by cancel culture, you're really put off by the idea that a blowback from like the, the more activist or woke employees in your newsroom could sort of dictate what the paper feels like it can and can't publish. And so I think if you are trying to establish an editorial page that is perhaps center left, but does so in a way that is responsible and cautious, I don't know who better than David Shipley to do that. Again, this is the problem. And even, you know, thinking about, you know, Chris Lick's mandate at CNN to do a sort of more toned down, responsible, centrist form of journalism, the, the fundamental question is, how do you make that interesting? Because, of course, at the end of the day, these are not just civic institutions. These are businesses. And I think you want to have, even on your editorial page or your op-ed page, content that punches through and can sort of drive the conversation. Well, it's so interesting to me that Two of Washington's most historic media institutions, The Post and The Atlantic, are owned by two of the wealthiest people in the world who got their, Jeff Bezos and speaking of Lorene Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow, through the acceptance of untold disruption, corner cutting, just go for it, get the bag, business tactics. And when they become media owners, they are uh, much more civic-minded, patrician, uh, don't break it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting sort of evolution. That's right. But if there, there is one thing I know about both Lorraine Powell Jobs and Jeff Bezos, which is that 
neither of them see their media enterprises as charity cases. They want these things to be successful businesses. They want them to be profitable, not not for their own sake, but for the sake of demonstrating that they can turn this into a very successful business model. And I think that at least, I don't know about the Atlantic, but definitely, at least for the Washington Post, I know from those meetings that Jeff Bezos and, and Fred Ryan had with candidates, they want it to be competitive and they want it to be successful. And Jeff Bezos is really focused on taking the post to the next level. And as sort of as much as it seems to have flatlined recently, so long as Bezos is the one backing it, you can't count out its ambitions. I do think that there's a future for the Washington Post that hasn't been realized yet. And it's going to be interesting to see how Bezos and Fred Ryan get it there. Well, we'll be covering that and so much more next week, if not the week after, the week after that on the powers that be a media money. Dylan, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you making time while you're reporting and um, I'll catch up with you on Slack. Okay. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 